I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Just about said Galatians, old habits. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. And we will read, beginning in verse 26, we will read uh, verses 26 through 31 as we finish up chapter 1 today. So, Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. It's interesting to me that we happen to be at this passage on this day, the same day that our city uh, begins officially Pride Week. Uh, this, this is uh, not something that was planned, um, but here we are. And part of the reason that I find this timing fascinating is that much of what is celebrated in June by our culture, at least many in our culture, uh, much of what is celebrated is rooted in a fundamentally flawed understanding of what a human being is. Um, the issues are not merely questions of ethics. That is, they're not just questions of whether a particular activity is right or wrong morally. Uh, it is that, but it is more. They are also questions of fundamental human identity. What are we? And who decides these things? Behind a lot of what we see today stands a very different view of humanity than what Scripture portrays and proclaims. The modern understanding of what it means to be a human seeks to reject all external guides. What determines what it means to be me is found within me. If the expectations of others, the expectations of parents, the expectations of society, the expectations of a book like the Bible, even biology itself. These things do not have the final say. They may actually have no say in the end. Moreover, sexuality has moved to the very core of what it means to be a human being. And so, if you disapprove of transgenderism or homosexuality, maybe even call it sin, then you're understood by many to be assaulting the very core of one's human identity. 
that you are seen to be delegitimizing their very existence. And so in their eyes, and many in the world's eyes, it's not acceptable for you or for me to say, I disagree, and I think you're wrong, but I still do care about you as a human being. They, they, they don't have a category for that. They'll say, no, you're denying my humanity by disagreeing, by calling this not good for me. You clearly don't care about me as a human being, or you would approve of this. So, so this, is, this is something of what we face today. And this is why when, as we saw, if you saw on the news this week, uh, this is why when a baseball player posts on social media that we should boycott a store because of their promotion of transgender ideology. Again, boycotting stores has been around forever, not, you know, not a new thing. But this is why now when someone does it on that basis, um, articles start flooding out, you know, so to speak, calling for their head. This guy should be traded. He should be cut. He should be, the team should move on from him. His, his, his well-being should be done away with. His, his job should be lost. Uh, have nothing more to do with him. Blacklist him. Why? Because he's seen as an enemy of humanity itself. And so when you see people liken those who, you know, like this baseball player who take a stand against transgenderism or homosexuality, when they liken such people to the KKK, or to Nazis, and we think, well, that's just simply absurd. They can't possibly mean that. They really do mean that. It is not hyperbole for many people to say that. Boycotting a store like Target for their transgender ideology is the same thing to many people as boycotting a store because the owners of that store are Jews or some other minority. They see no difference between those two. So obviously, this is very troubling. This is a very disturbing development in the world around us. And so what do we do about this? Well, we know that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation for those who believe. God has saved all manner of sinners throughout the ages with all manner of horrific sins and terrible views of the world. So we don't lose hope in the power of the gospel. Uh, throughout the pages of scripture, it is apparent that God saved people from all manner of horrific sins of the past. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives a list of sins that if practiced without repentance and faith in Christ, will such a person will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we see some that seem not all that horrific in our eyes, maybe. And we see other sins in that list that are indeed very horrific. And Paul says, such were some of you. This church in Corinth was filled with all manner of former sinners, those who enjoyed all types of sinfulness. God can and does save through the preaching of Christ. And so we don't lose hope in the gospel and its power to save. And that this is necessary for our society to hear. And I think we also should see the importance of having a good anthropology, a good understanding of what it means to be a human being. And that we should be ready with that as we interact with others and as we counter other people's claims about what it means to be a human. And as we've been going through Genesis, we've already begun to 
answer this question of what is a human being, even as we have spent the last couple weeks really considering what God is and who God is, as we think of him as our, as we, as we see him revealed to us as our creator. As we begin to understand something of who God is, we can then begin to understand more of what we are as his people, as creatures. And now as we come to verse 26 of chapter 1, we come to the creation of man where we begin to see more explicitly what man is. And of course, as we look at these verses, we are reminded, I remind you, that this all happens before the entrance of sin into the world. And so what we see here in Genesis chapter 1 about man has indeed been corrupted by sin, but it nevertheless still provides important instruction for us that remains incredibly relevant to us today and is an important, really fundamental starting place for understanding and answering this question of what is man. And so let's get into these verses as we consider what man is. And the first thing, man is a created being. Man is a created being. This is maybe an obvious point to make if we consider this text, but it is a reality that appears to be anything but obvious in our society. So verse 26 begins, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. So this is now the eighth usage in chapter one of this phrase, and God said. Uh, ESV translates it here, then God said, but it's the same Hebrew phrase that we read back in verse uh, 24 and verse 20 and, and each time before that. So there's this statement, and God said, and this is then followed by his creative act. And verse 27 then gives us the act itself here. So God created and, and there's that word again. We mentioned back in verse 1 that this Hebrew word only ever has God as the subject of it. It's a unique kind of creation that only God can do. So God created man in his own image. So once more we are reminded of this creator-creature distinction. There is God, the creator, and then there is everything else, creation. There's a distinction between the two. We understand then that part of what defines humanity, what makes us human beings, is that we are creatures. We are creatures of the one true creator God. Now, obviously, this is not in itself unique to human beings. Animals are also created creatures of God. But it is nevertheless true and essential as a starting place to understand what we are. We are creatures of the one true creator God. And so all of the implications that we have talked about in the previous weeks that come with this uh, reality that there is God the creator and then there is everyone and everything else, all of these distinctions remain. We, as humans, belong to God. He has made us. We are his. He determines the rules for us, for how things operate within his creation. He defines, moreover, what it is to be human. So we again are reminded we are created beings. We are certainly not the result of just random chance and dumb luck. There is a higher authority. 
than any human institution, a higher authority than any power we see in nature around us. There is a higher authority than any one person's subjective self-understanding. And so key to understanding what man is, is this fact that we are created, we are creatures. So that's number one, man is created. Secondly, man is created in God's image. Man is created in God's image. So the fact that we are created, as I said, uh, that's not unique to us. We share that with the animals, for example, and indeed really all of creation. But man is very clearly presented in this text as being the apex or the, the climax, the high point of God's creation of the universe. This is demonstrated in a few ways in this text, but perhaps the most obvious is the fact that man is said to be created in God's image. So again, look at verse 26 once more. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's, there's a few things to unpack here. And first of all, is this question of whose image is this? In verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so we ask, why is this plural here all of a sudden? Uh, the verbs so far for, uh, that go with the subject God have been singular. Now we have these these uh, and, and, and references to him and to he are singular. And now we have uh, this, this plural language, us and our. And then in verse 27 again, we're reminded there, or we see there, I should say, that there's no plural. The plural is gone. It says we're created in his own image. And the word he is used again instead of us. So what, what is this plural? Well, in light of what the New Testament very clearly reveals to us, also, God's word to us. I don't think we should stumble over this for long. I understand verse 26 to be, as one writer says, and as many have understood it, an intra-Trinitarian executive divine council. This is the members of the Trinity speaking here. Some, even Christian scholars, see this as being inappropriate. Because they will argue that Moses, the original author here, and his audience, the Israelites, they wouldn't have been able to understand it in that way because they didn't have the later clearer revelation of the New Testament. But I would respectfully disagree and say that that evidences faulty hermeneutics. They're reading their Bibles poorly at that point, I would say. It may well have been somewhat ambiguous and a little bit fuzzy for Moses and for the Israelites. But when we get to the New Testament, we have very clear and explicit commentary on these verses telling us that the Son of God was eternally God, was with God, and that all things were created through him. So there's just no reason then when we look at Genesis chapter 1, we should pretend as if John 1, 1 doesn't exist and act like we can't really know who the us and the our is speaking of here. We have an early seed of the doctrine of the Trinity here in Genesis 1 that will come to full flower in the New Testament. 
So it's very similar to what we said back in verse 2 when we see this reference to the Spirit. We see very clearly the Spirit of God is a person. It's the third member of the Godhead. And so even that reference to the Spirit, I would suggest, does permit an understanding, even for Moses and the Israelites who would have first read this, that there is some plurality in the Godhead, though they would not have fully grasped it. Again, it's, it's, this doesn't do any insult or violence to any of the Old Testament readers, nor to the inspiration of Scripture, nor to Moses who wrote. We're told, Peter tells us in 1 Peter, that the prophets were searching for what time and person the Spirit of God within them was speaking about. Uh, they, they were speaking of things that weren't perfectly clear to them, that become clearer in the New Testament. Just as when we think about what the Bible says about Christ's return, we acknowledge there are some things that are a little bit fuzzy in our understanding of exactly how that's going to play out. But one day that fuzz is going to all be gone. It's no longer going to be fuzzy to us. It'll be clear. And we're not going to look back and think, wow, that really misled us. No, we would understand that now it's a lot clearer in light of what has come. So in light of Christ's coming, in light of New Testament teaching, this is, I would suggest to you, Reference, early reference to the Trinity. Some will argue that God is speaking to the heavenly court, that is to angels. But of course, man is not created in the image of angels, but explicitly, verse 27 says it's in his own image, in the image of God. Moreover, it is widely agreed and understood that chapter 1, one of the theological points of this chapter is that God has no co-participants in the act of creation. Man is created rather in the image and likeness of the one true God who eternally exists in the three persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now when it comes to what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God, I think it is best to understand these terms as essentially being synonymous. So, being created in God's image according Let us create man in our image according to our likeness. Then that phrase, according to our likeness, is really just further explanation, maybe even some clarification on what it means to be made in, for God to make us in what he says is our image. So they're synonymous, essentially. And I say this because the two words are used interchangeably in other places. And sometimes just one of the two words is used. So, for example, only image is used in verse 27, where it's used twice to speak of our being created in God's image, and likeness is nowhere found in verse 27. But then when we jump ahead to chapter 5, verse 1, it says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And so sometimes we see the word image, sometimes we see the word likeness, and sometimes we see both words used together. And the same thing goes when we jump ahead to the New Testament. In James chapter 3, James uses likeness. He says that we are created in God's likeness. But in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, Paul uses image. The man is in the image of God. So I suggest that they're all really referring to the same general concept. So what is that concept? Well, the words obviously show us that we are like God in some way. Of course, we are different. Again, we are creatures. But unlike other creatures, we are image bearers, created in God's likeness. And so I would 
suggest to you that the two main aspects of being image bearers and being in God's likeness is that man was created with the capacity to possess true knowledge of God and we were created with moral integrity. We were created upright, holy. So God created man with both body and soul. We have a reasonable soul, that immaterial part of us, and we have a physical body which houses that immaterial part of us. And together this makes up man. And man in this form possesses the ability to know and to walk with God. And God created man originally in a state of moral perfection. Ecclesiastes 7.29 tells us God made man upright. Not just that we stand on our two feet, but morally upright. Ecclesiastes says, but man has sought out many schemes. We've corrupted, but God created man morally upright. Certainly we see that as we will get in further into Genesis chapter 2 and 3, of course. So this idea that image and likeness involve knowledge of God and true holiness is borne out in the New Testament, where we find that the Spirit of God is restoring believers into the image and likeness of God through our sanctification. As we grow in knowledge and holiness, we could even say that is what sanctification is. So Colossians chapter 3 verse 10 says Christians have Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So this renewal in knowledge is being renewed in the image of our creator. So it involves true knowledge of God. And then in Ephesians 4.24, similar but different, Paul tells Christians to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. The likeness of God then involves true righteousness and holiness. And so as we consider being created in the image of God and in his likeness, it reminds us that the image and likeness of God has been greatly marred by the fall. And that salvation, the Bible speaks of, involves making sinners remaking sinners into the image of Christ, who is himself the ultimate image of the invisible God. And while the image of God in man is marred by the fall in Genesis 3 and on, and while corruption and depravity enters the picture, the Bible doesn't speak as if this image bearing is completely destroyed. It is marred but not totally and completely defaced. There are ongoing ramifications in a fallen world of our having been originally created in this way. Such that even now, on this side of Genesis 3, after the fall, even for sinners, human dignity is tied to this reality that man is created in God's image. And we see this in Scripture. For example, in Genesis 9 and verse 6, after the flood, God is speaking to Noah He establishes the death penalty for murderers and gives the reason for that. For God made man in his own image. The reason man is not to murder another man is we are created in God's image. It is an insult against God himself. 
such that it carries this maximum penalty of having your own life being forfeited if you were found guilty of murder. Another example is James 3.9, maybe a less, slightly less extreme example. Verse 9 of James 3, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. These things ought not to be so. So even just, never mind murdering somebody, that maybe extreme end, cursing another person, is said to be wrong because they are in God's likeness. And so this reality of, of human beings being created in the image and likeness of God has ongoing and profound implications, even after the fall, for how it is that we ought to treat other people. Respect and dignity are to be the norm. So again, if we think about the way our world treats human beings and humanity right now, this is grossly lacking and missing. Consider our culture of death that we live in, where we increasingly, our own country, encouraging people to consider just ending your life if you're facing mental heart, mental uh, difficulties or, or any other number of difficulties, this continual expansion of so-called medical aid and dying. We don't have authority to just kill somebody. We should not treat other people in that way, even if they are suffering. Why do we have... If this is the way we always treated man, somebody would break their back. Rather than trying to figure out how can we help somebody in that condition, how can we try to advance our understanding of medicine and science to try to help them, we would just put them down like a dog. We don't treat people that way. We should not treat men, women that way, image bearers of God. We're not animals. Again, wide-ranging implications of being created in the image of God. Matthew Henry offers a lament as he thinks about the image of God and man. He says, How this image of God upon man is defaced. How small are the remains of it. And how great the ruins of it. And then the prayer, The Lord renew it upon our souls by His sanctifying grace. Thirdly, man is created male and female. Man is created male and female. Look at verse 27 again. So God created man in his own image. That word for man there is the Hebrew word Adam, which can mean man in general, but it also comes to be the proper name of the first man, Adam. Adam, Adam. Here it is very clearly a reference to man in general. God created man, mankind. And so that, that word, as we see in verse 27, so God created man, that should not be something that is offensive to any females, to any ladies, uh, precisely because of what comes next. It says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God's creation of man who bears the image of God, 
clearly includes both male and female. It, it seems like it should go without saying that this is very important and significant. That male and female are two complementary sexes created by God as part of his original good creation. That there is a wonderful complementary to it. And we'll see in a a moment that part of that design is in keeping with the purpose. Part of the purpose of of male and female is, is procreation, which we'll see in just a moment. But before we even consider the function of men and women, simply being created as a man or as a woman is itself part of God's plan and God's good design for you. It's a good thing to be a male or to be a female. And that's not something that we get to determine and decide. How awful and how inhumane to teach people that your body can and maybe should be mutilated to try to force it to conform to your current inner feelings of dysphoria about your gender. This is brutal. And a horrific, depressing message to give to people. A better man than me would be weeping at this point. One who isn't so hardened by the insanity of it all. If we consider the havoc that this is wreaking upon sinners, yes, but image bearers of God. Male and female is not some incidental part of us that you can take or leave or change or whatever. This is clear in Scripture, and it's clear in nature. What we we are witnessing is wholesale rejection of God and rebellion against His created order. Again, that male and female is, is wonderful and works together. That... You can see that even just in nature. We are witnessing what Romans 1 reveals to us. That as people have rejected God, we've been handed over to this rebellion such that we are debased in our thinking. What else could possibly explain that? If you are a male... God has a good purpose for you in that. If you are a female, likewise, God has a good purpose for you in that. Both are beautiful and wonderful realities. And both of those categories, male and female, there's lots of diversity within those. No two men, no two women are the same. Even though... There may be valid stereotypes, maybe similarities that we might laugh at. So we note that male and female is an important aspect of God's creation of man, of what it means to be a human. And we'll see even more of this as we get into chapter 2. Fourthly, man is created for a purpose. So far, we've mainly been looking at what man is. Man is created 
Man is created in God's image. Man is created as male and female. But we also have in these verses some of man's function, what we're created to do, what we're called to do. There are tasks before us. In verse 26, our triune God declares his intent to create man and what the task will be for man. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then, as we've seen, verse 27, we have the actual creation of man. And then verse 28, God gives the actual commission where much of verse 26 is repeated with some slight difference. Verse 28, and God blessed them. So this commissioning is a a blessing. This is a good thing for man to do. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Over the fish of the sea specifically and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God blesses man and gives him a commission to have a certain role within this creation of God's. And we see a few aspects of this purpose in these verses. And as we go through these, I'll again just note that these are all affected by what will happen in Genesis 3. They're all affected by the fall. And yet none of these purposes, they're they're different, they're a little... Well, we'll get to that. But none none of these purposes ultimately go away altogether. So let's, let's look here. The first aspect of our purpose is procreation. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So again, part of God's design for creating man as male and female is for the purpose of then multiplying and spreading out and filling the earth. And as we'll see in chapter 2, This is clearly to be done within the bond of marriage. This is not just some promiscuous thing, but it's to be done within marriage. We will see the first marriage later in chapter 2. Specifically, specifically if we consider verse 24, we see the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Jesus will appeal to that verse to demonstrate this lifelong Bond that is to be marriage, that's part of God's design, that, that still pertains even after the fall. We'll cover, obviously, those verses in a, in a few weeks. But we see here that clearly this is part of the general purpose that is given to mankind. And it continues even after the fall. In the words of Jesus, quoting from Genesis 2.24, but also... In God's covenant with Noah after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, where we again find that being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth is still part of man's duty, even in the fallen world. I just want to give a, a caveat on this. This doesn't mean that every individual male and female will necessarily marry and have children. So I'm not suggesting that if you're single or barren, that you should feel guilty for that. I think there are some people out there who are rejecting God's purposes of marriage and procreation and remaining single, and there could be sin tied to that. But I'm not suggesting that every 
single person is in sin for being single. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 and Jesus in Matthew 19 both speak highly of the type of singleness that is used for focused service in the kingdom of God. There even is, as Paul points out, some advantage to it as he experienced himself. Nevertheless, procreation within the bond of marriage is to be the ordinary course of things, and, that's, and that is the way. Man is to procreate in the bonds of marriage. Further aspects of man's purpose include subjugation and dominion. So verse 28 again, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, it says. The spreading out across the face of the earth is accompanied by subduing that created order, bringing it under man's feet. And as we'll see more as we get into chapter 2, I think this originally would have involved Adam spreading Eden out to extend that temple garden that is Eden to the ends of the earth. Obviously, that's now not possible in light of chapter 3 and Adam's fall and Adam and Eve being punted from the garden. Nevertheless, man was still to multiply and to spread out and to work the ground. It's just that now that work has been cursed and made a lot more difficulty, difficult and futility has been introduced. And dominion is diminished and not completely and entirely attainable. But this, still, this commissioning still has implications for man. Though due to the curse, this original intended subjugation eludes mortal man. And the same thing can be true of the commission to have dominion. So it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We see that man was created to be God's vice regent, that is to exercise authority on the earth on behalf of God. So if we consider where we are in chapter one, God has created the earth. He has formed it to be a habitable place. He has created plant life. He has created animals. And at the end of all of this, he now creates man and he gives to man dominion over all of these things that God has created. Specifically, it says dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Again, man is the, the pinnacle of God's creation here. And it is then given to him creation that man might govern it in an appropriate manner. The animals are there for man's need. And in verses 29 and 30, we see some further provisions for man and beast. 29, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God gave to man and beast the plants for food to sustain life. Man wouldn't have eaten meat at this point. Death has not been introduced yet. 
The first clear indication of Scripture of eating meat is actually after the fall. We'll maybe talk more about that later. But we see here that God has provided for all of his creatures that he has created. And in the hierarchy of these created beings, man was and is at the top on this earth. Again, this is something that is not well understood at all today. As many would exalt earth and exalt animals ahead of man. We were even just talking the other day about in Hinduism how the rat is worshipped and therefore they will not exterminate rats and they eat many, 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 many pounds of grain and food that could otherwise feed human beings. It's this elevation of a creature really over man. So man's going to have to go hungry so that we can worship and venerate this rat. But it's not just in other parts of the world that we find this, of course. In our own society, we see this. To many, man is the ultimate scourge on earth. And of course, we can say that in one sense that's true. After all, man's sin has brought corruption. But this does not invert God's design. It does not mean that trees and rivers and animals ought to have a higher status than human babies in the womb. Nor does this totally remove man's dominion over this world. As Calvin said, man's dominion was indeed greatly diminished at the fall, but not totally abolished and wiped out. As we examine things today, we can see that man has indeed spread out across much of the earth, even bringing much of it under subjection to us. Consider the fact of where we live. And the fact that we don't all die in the wintertime while we're here. Despite the fact that there are really no trees around us to burn to stay alive. We've figured out how to bring this to an extent under subjection to us. How to cultivate the land and be the breadbasket of the world and, and even ship that grain all across the world. And yet at the same time, we have famines and drought and floods, and other places, earthquakes, in addition to man's own destruction. These things continue to wreak havoc. And for all of our successes and advances, it's amazing how often indeed we are at the mercy of the elements. The water starts rising, and sometimes there's just not a lot you can do about it. The creation is wild. It groans, as Paul says in Romans 8. And even animals today often destroy what we seek to produce. We have dominion, but not total dominion. And I think this is precisely what the New Testament confirms for us. And this is also a reminder to us, our struggle with the elements is a reminder to us of the ravages of sin and the need for a Redeemer who will reverse the curse and establish perfect dominion. And it is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to establish true dominance over the earth and bring it into complete subjection to man as he is the ultimate man, the God-man. This is what that Hebrews 2 passage is talking about that we read earlier in the service where it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, 
to man. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It's not a perfect subjection now, is it? We see all this wildness. We see everything uh, evil in the world. We see natural disasters and so on. It's not a perfect subjection. But what do we see? The author says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Christ is the promised offspring of the woman who comes to bring creation to its proper and ultimate end. He is awaiting the time when all of his enemies will be finally and completely placed under his feet, when all things will indeed be subjected to him, and he will usher in the new creation in all of its fullness. And now, at present, we don't yet see it. It hasn't yet occurred. But with eyes of faith, we see the crucified and now glorified and crowned Son of God who tasted death for us. And by that death, secured our pardon and our participation in that new creation. Christ's eternal kingdom has broken into this age. And sinners enter into his kingdom by faith in him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he says, new creation. We are not those who have our own efforts and strivings and brilliance usher in Christ's new creation. Rather, we preach Christ, and he brings it to pass by making sinners new, by drawing sinners to himself. And one day he will return in glory and establish the new heavens and new earth in their full glory. And he will do this as the God-man, bringing creation to its final and appointed end. And as heirs of this glory, co-heirs with Christ, true sons of God. We await this glorious inheritance if indeed we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are entrusting ourselves to him. So contrary to contemporary belief and understanding, man is indeed created by God in his image, male and female, and with intention and purpose. And how badly the world needs to grasp these things. When God had fin finished creating man, in fact, had finished all of his created, creative works, we read in verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The Bible's explanation of man is so much more compelling than what we find around us. Is it not? 
And while we understand that ultimately it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is going to change hearts, part of our message is that God is the creator of everyone and everything. That as we seek to preach Christ to people, part of our explanation to our neighbors and to our confused world is what a human being is. This, what the Bible teaches about man and about man's creation is is far more compelling, I would suggest, than anything else. Not that that's what makes it true, but I think that is true. It is far more compelling, and it accords with reality. We understand part of reality is that man has fallen from our original state. This explains the evil. This explains the futility, the difficulty of our labor, death, and so on. And so again, man's need is not simply to know how man began, but also to know how man is redeemed from our sins and the consequences thereof. That sinners might know and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the sole Savior of the world. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we give you praise. You are worthy of worship. You are the creator of all things. We are the work of your hands. And we belong to you. Father, as we look out into our world and as we look into our own hearts, it is evident that your good creation has indeed been marred and has been plunged into darkness and into sin. And yet even in the midst of that, we still still see your providence upon us. That the earth that you created still produces food for us to eat. That your sun still shines upon us, bringing life to our planet. All of this is because you ordain it to be so. And moreover, you send your rain and you shine your sunlight upon the just and the unjust alike. What kindness and patience you show. Father, as we see man descending into greater and greater darkness around us, at least greater than what we have maybe seen in our lifetime until now, We, we come before you on behalf of our lost world and we pray that you would yet show saving mercy to many. Father, may it be our desire not simply, not simply that our world would stop butchering human beings, though we desire that and want that. We, we know, Father, that man's great need is to be born again, to be made new within. 
And so we pray that you would pour out your spirit in true reviving upon our land. That your word, wherever it is proclaimed, your gospel, wherever that good news is preached and explained and read, that it would bring forth the fruit of redemption and salvation. Father, we know that you will be glorified in the end no matter what you choose to do. You are glorified in your judgments and you are glorified when you show mercy. But we do pray for mercy. Give us courage and strength to speak the truth of your word. Give us burden for the lost. Father, help us to not simply rage at all of the craziness that we see but to also have that compassion that we would also put forth that you are not only a God of justice, but a God of mercy, and that there is yet time for sinners to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be forgiven. Father, forgive us where we fail in this regard and renew us and strengthen us to be committed to evangelism. Father, bless all the efforts that are ongoing and have been ongoing. Thank you for all who are making the effort. And Father, we know our weakness. We feel our weakness in all of this. We understand that many in our world view these words that we are saying and your word that we have looked at this afternoon as utter nonsense. And we can't Simply convince them otherwise. So, Father, we pray that you would do that by your Spirit and draw lost sinners to yourself. Father, encourage us and strengthen us in the tasks and duties that you have given to us as we continue to work, as we continue to full, fulfill our obligation as Christian men and women, as fathers and mothers and grandparents, and everywhere. that we work and live. Father, help us to do these things to your honor and glory. May that be our desire. We thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you for your church, for giving us one another. We pray all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.